church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. I can't speak to you when you have that look on your face. I try to get through to you, but your heart is like a maze. A puzzle I can't complete because you have a missing piece. Life I can't help you with Because you won't accept me Or believe this And I'm down on my knees With all my love I'm waiting for you To come back home I am speaking Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you this week. I pray your week has been well. Mine has been pretty busy, but good. And I'm excited to talk about uh, the topic of today's show. We're going to be starting chapter 6 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises. We're getting into the story of Isaac and Rebekah, of Esau and Jacob, as we move the narrative forward in the story of salvation history. But, you know, it seems to me that when we talk about how Isaac met Rebecca, we we pass that over too quickly. So I'm going to dedicate the entire show to how Isaac met Rebecca. It's basically chapter 24 of the book of Genesis. And so we're going to be getting into that and seeing how Isaac got on his knees and trusted God, basically, you know, for, for his spouse, trusting his father to find him a wife. And not taking the the matters into his own hands. It's about trust and giving and sacrifice. And so I think it's a a great story to to meditate on for today's show. But as always, before we do, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All praise and glory and honor be to you, Almighty God, forever and ever. We come before you to praise you, to worship you, to seek your grace. Send forth your spirit and open our hearts and open our minds that we might meditate upon your word today. May you make it come alive for us. We pray especially for those priests, fathers, fathers of their flock that you have given them, dear Father. Protect them, guide them. We pray that you will just send forth your Holy Spirit to be with them 
to guide them on their path as they serve you in the ministry of the priesthood. We pray for all fathers this Father's Day. We ask you to bless them and strengthen them as they guide their families, the vocation that you have entrusted them with, the care, the protection, the formation of their families, to offer them as the unblemished bride, the unblemished offering to God. Please, Heavenly Father, teach them to be good earthly fathers. We pray for all marriages that they may be strengthened in this fight against a secular, relativistic society. May God have mercy and send forth your spirit and strengthen the marriage. Strengthen the hearts of the husbands and wives that they might be equipped for the journey, be equipped for the battle against this world. We pray all this in asking Our Lady's intercession. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Dr. Scott Hahn, in his book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, in chapter 6 of page 111, says, quote, Advanced in years... And fearful that his son might marry a Canaanite, Abraham dispatched his most trusted servant to the land of Ur, Abraham's hometown. The assignment, find a wife for Isaac from among my own people. God the Father led this servant to Rebekah, the daughter of Abraham's brother. This woman of unusual faith and courage agreed to leave her family and hastily set off for a distant land. Now, what I like about that little summation there is the last sentence reminds us exactly of what we talked about when we first opened up the uh, you know the book of Genesis to talk about Abram. When Abram was called by God out of his own land, out of his comfort zone, and, and sent forth to a land that I shall show you, God says, there I will promise you blessing. I will promise you descendants as, as much as the sands of the seashore, or the stars of the sky. I will give you a name. I will give you a land. I will give you title. I will give you all these things. So that sort of reminds me of that, that this woman, Rebecca, who comes from the same land, is almost given the same sort of proposition. You must decide to go to a land that I will show you, and I will give you descendants. I will give you nations come from your womb. Now, so that's a, it's a very interesting proposition once again. And so I thought, well, let's, let's dive on that a little more. Let's take a look at this entire chapter, which is Genesis chapter four and see what it, what it, what's going on here. What are the, the, the heavier nuggets that we can draw out and look at? So we start in Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to skip to verse 2 here. It says, quote, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. Now, let's stop there. There's two things going on here that uh, you can't just pass up. I mean, hello, under my thigh? What is all that about? Seriously? But first, before we even talk about that, I, I wanted to mention this oldest servant. 
the one who had charge over all that he had. This is very interesting. Now, the Targums, the oral tradition of the of the translation from the Hebrew scrolls and in, into the Aramaic in the synagogue, you know, we've talked about that many times, but the Targums, you know, I'm going to be quoting from them uh, quite, uh, a, quite a few times in today's show, as well as an Old Testament Catholic commentary by Hadock, which I'll post a link on my website at catholichack.com. Now, the Targums say, quote, about as far as this verse goes, quote, And Abraham said to Eliezer, his servant, the senior of his house, who had rule over all his property, Put now thy hand upon the section of my circumcision. So what I want to point out, first of all, is the is Eliezer seems to possess a certain position within Abraham's house. This is very reminiscent, or let's say it's the beginnings of what we will see over and over again throughout the rest of salvation history. For instance, when we get to Joseph and the and the you know the dreamer, the one with the 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 coat of many colors who sold into slavery, well, eventually he becomes the the over the house of Pharaoh. He's given the signet ring of Pharaoh, and he's made to ride on Pharaoh's chariots, and he's made to dress in these certain vestments that people recognize as being the over the house in Pharaoh's court. You know, the second in command over all of the land, over all of the people, second only to the king. Okay, well, we see the same thing happen in the kingdom of David. David also has a prime minister or an over the house, the possessor of the keys of the kingdom and the temple and the priestly uh, service in the temple. And we see that all all of that is an Old Testament prototype. They're all Old, Old Testament prototype. They're foreshadowings from the for the perfection that is to come. Well, all of that comes into perfection in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, where Jesus in, in, the, in the region of Caesarea Philippi gives the keys to the kingdom to St. Peter and says to St. Peter, you are the rock and upon this rock I shall build my church, you know, and I shall give you the keys to the kingdom and what you bind shall be bound and what you loose shall be loosed and the gates of hell well, they will not prevail against it. That is powerful language. It's very specific language. It's referring to all of these Old Testament prototypes. We've talked about that in greater length than other shows. But I just wanted to mention it here that this Eliezer seems to be in the same vein as all of that. He is the second in command in, in, in Abraham's household. He has, he has authority over all of his possessions. And as such, he is the keeper of Abraham's household. He has he has title, he has position, he has authority. And so I, I didn't want to let that just go because this is an awesome Old Testament prototype for what will be fulfilled in St. Peter and the office of the Pope. Pope meaning simply uh, father, you know, it's a, an affectionate term for daddy or father. You know, just as we saw in previous episodes, you know, we talked about this and how St. Peter is the fulfillment of the over the house, the keeper of the keys, who, as we said, was a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he was a papa to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so St. Peter is a papa to the people, the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, of the new temple, of the new kahal, the ecclesia, you know, the church of the lamb. Okay, so we being members of the church, St. Peter is our Papa, set up and designed by God himself 
given to him in St. Peter's or St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. In Hadock's commentary, it says, quote, to testify that their oath shall be no less binding than the covenant of circumcision. St. Augustine and St. Ambrose conclude that it had a reference to the mysterious birth of the Redeemer. How very fascinating is that? You know, think of this. Think of uh, the scenes you've seen uh, either on television or in the movies, or actually, you might have actually, you know, done this yourself. Have you ever gone to court or seen a courtroom scene where they call up a witness and they they first make the witness place their hand on the Bible and to raise their other hand and say, you know, "Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth?" And they reply, "I do." So help me God. Okay, they're they're making a prom a promise with their hand on the Word of God, right? Yes. Well, something very similar to that is happening here. Abraham is asking his servant to take, to go into his homeland, to go away from the Canaanites, to find him a wife for his son Isaac. And he wants him to promise. He wants him to swear an oath. And he's doing it by having him place his hand upon the circumcision, that covenant sign that God asked Abraham to make by cutting off the foreskin of him and every man in his family. This was the covenant sign, okay, the circumcision. Place your hand on my circumcision, as the Targum says, and swear this oath that you promise you will go into the land of my my father and you will find a wife for my um, for my son. You will not uh, you will not take him back there and you will not um, find a wife amongst the Canaanites. And so he, he does. He, he swears this oath by placing his hand on the inner thigh, on the, the covenant sign, the circumcision. Now, in Hadock's commentary, he says that St. Augustine and St. Ambrose conclude that it had a reference to the mysterious birth of our Redeemer. Thought that was very interesting. That I, I didn't, I wasn't able to pull up any more information that could have maybe expound upon that a little bit. But it seems that through the covenant sign, there was look, they were looking forward to the birth of our Lord through the seed of the man in this line of salvation history, which will come to fruition in the birth of the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. So I thought that was all very fascinating. In chapter twenty-four, verse four, it says, "Quote, but." will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. Now, in Hadock's commentary, it says that Nahor's family still resided and had more respect for the true God than the Canaanites, though they gave way to some sort of idolatry. Hence, Abraham was in hopes that a partner worthy of Isaac might be found among his relations better than among those devoted to the nations. Now, what's interesting, What's interesting, rather, as I had to grab a book real quick, what's interesting, rather, is uh, a little commentary that Scott Hahn wrote in the Didache series on the understanding the Scriptures. On page 108 of chapter 6 of that book, uh, he says, quote, Although Abraham had settled permanently in Canaan, he was still a foreigner there, 
He was living among people who had different customs, spoke with a different accent, and, most of all, worshipped different gods. God had promised the land to his descendants. How horrible would it be if those descendants fell into the revolting idolatry of the Canaanites? But that was just what might happen if Isaac married one of the local women. That same old problem with the sons of God and the daughters of men might come up all over again. All God's promises to Abraham were to be fulfilled through Isaac. The only way to keep Isaac from falling into idolatry, Abraham had, Abraham had decided, was to keep him away from the Canaanites. Abraham's servant, therefore, went back to Mesopotamia, where Abraham's relatives still lived. Outside the city of Nahor, he stopped by a well. Now, it's it's the whole stopping by a well part is very significant through salvation history, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. But I want you to understand how just the, how how much Abraham did not want to see Isaac fall into idolatry, but through marriage. And we we Scott Hahn references, you know, before earlier in salvation history when. Cain, after he murdered Abel, he sets up this bad line that comes to, you know, evil's fulfillment in polygamy and murder and other things. Well, what happens? You have a good line set off by a bad line. Seth, you know, the new son made in the image and likeness of Adam, his father, is a good line. He he worships the name of God. The bad line worships their own name. They seek a name for themselves. And ultimately what happens is the good line gets corrupted by the bad line through marriage, through marrying and bad choices. You know, this is where we get the unequally yoked part. You know, you marry, you marry an unbeliever, well, you're taking a giant risk of becoming an unbeliever yourself. And so this is what Abraham is trying to avoid. And so he asks that his servant Eliezer go back and find him a wife amongst his own people. Now, as the commentary suggests, that his own people, although had more respect for the one true living God, were not completely devoted to the one true living God. And we're going to see that in part of the Targum commentary in a verse coming up. So this was heavy on Abraham's heart. He wanted someone who could be equally yoked with Isaac and Isaac's faith. Isaac was known to be, you know, a man of piety at this point. Let's not forget that Isaac himself submitted himself to be sacrificed, you know, according to God's plan, calling Abraham to take his only son to to the mountain and to offer him up there. Isaac submitted himself to that process. So Isaac you know, loved God. He loved him, and he gave himself over to him. And so it was very important to find him the proper spouse that could help complement that, that could move us through salvation history into the family of God, because there were enough curveballs already. They didn't need any more. All right, let's get back to verse 10. Quote, the ser- Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the wall, by the well of water, at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Now, I think that's about three o'clock in the afternoon. That's traditionally what evening means in Scripture. But he's outside at the well. And 
this is where we can start to draw some significance. Basically, what happens here is he comes to Nahor, he comes to the city of his of Abraham's brothers, his relatives, his descendant living there, and he, he stops at the well and he's very thirsty. And this is where he starts to pray to God. And he says, God, okay, you led me here, but I need some assurance, Father. I need a sign. Give me a sign that I know that things have gone well, that you have blessed my master, Abraham. Here's what I'm asking. I'm going to see, I see these women coming out with their jars and I'm going to ask one of them to, to give me drink, to let down her jar. And, and the one that says yes, and gives me a drink from her jar and then offers to, to give drink to my camels too. Well, let that be the one to be uh, the wife of Isaac, my master. And so no sooner than he prays this, no sooner than he, he's not even done praying all of this, asking God for a sign, praying boldly to the Father, then here comes this beautiful woman with her jar to draw water from the well. And he asks her, you know, to, can you give me a drink? And she says, yes, of course, drink. And she lets down her jar. And then she says, well, let me give drink to your camels too. And she pulls up water and she puts it in the trough and the camels drink as well. And and so Eliezer is just sitting here grinning. You know, he's he's being silent about it, but he's he's grinning ear to ear. He says, quote, in verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had promised his journey or not, or I'm sorry, prospered his journey or not. When the camels had done drinking, the man took gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. Now, so this whole section here is it's amazing because God has granted Eliezer this sign. Eliezer had the courage to ask God to sort of wager with God a little bit, you know, <laughs> to to say God, make this easy on me. I'm just going to ask the first, you know, beautiful maiden that I see with a water jar. And please tell me if it's her by having her do certain things. And no sooner than he finishes this prayer, the first beautiful maiden he sees with a, with a water jar turns out to be the one. I mean, God is good all the time, right? Well, the bride at the well is very significant. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get too heavy into this right now because I might wait until we get into uh, the, the third example of this in our journey through salvation history. But let me just reference them. We're going to see how uh, a bride is met at a water well on a few other occasions. For instance, Jacob will meet his bride in Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 15. Moses meets his bride in Exodus chapter 2, verses 16 through 25. And we'll also see how Jesus meets a bride at a well in St. John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 41. Now, the woman at the well, a very significant passage in St. John's Gospel. I think we've talked about it before, but it, it definitely evokes, brings to mind uh, all of these episodes of men meeting their spouse at a well. Now, what's more particular is she's a Samaritan woman, right? And that's uh, set off by the fact that Jesus is a Jew. And so the dialogue that goes back and forth, ultimately what we see is Jesus is now calling the Samaritans back into the fold. He's calling the Israelites back home to the family of God. He's reuniting them. And then he goes on to bring in all of the Gentiles. And we saw that in Acts chapter 2. So the woman at the well, a very significant passage. The men 
men meeting women at the well gives greater context to John chapter 4. It, it allows us to understand why the, his disciples were shocked to see Jesus speaking to a woman at a well, uh, especially at that time of the day. Um, you know, so just keep that in the back of your mind. In Haydock's commentary, it says, quote, He chose a mark which would manifest the kindness and humility of the maid who would be a fit match for the pious Isaac. This was no vain observation. God heard his fervent prayer. So the servant chose an act that would emphasize her good nature, that would emphasize her piety, that would emphasize her charity towards the stranger, that her willingness to, to give him drink and to then work to pull up all of that water so that the camels even could drink. This would make for a good fit for Isaac and Isaac's own piety. I thought that was very interesting. The Targums say, quote, And it was when the camels had been satisfied with drink that the man took an earring of gold of a drachma in weight, the counterpart of the drachma of the head money, which her children presented for the work of the sanctuary. And he set two golden bracelets upon her hands in weight Ten silene of gold, the sum of their weight being the counterpart of the two tables of which were inscribed the ten words. So there it seems in the in the Targums, in the oral tradition of this of interpreting this particular verse, it seems that the ring that Eleazar gives her, uh, by the way, in, in scripture it says that he put it on her nose. It's a nose ring. I thought that was pretty interesting. And he give, also gives her two bracelets for her hand or for her arm. Now, the Targums interpret that as prefigurements to the giving of the gold that her children, her descendants, through her womb, would one day give gold the same amount for the building of the sanctuary, and that this the two bracelets would also prefigure the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the tablets where God inscribes with his finger the Ten Words or the, the Ten Commandments, the law given to Moses and given to the people. I thought that was very fascinating. As we skip forward on to verse 28, we read about how this man says, "Do you? where is your house? Who do you live with? Where is your family? Is there room for me in there? I mean, because now by now, Eleazar is like, you know, he's praising God. He's thanking him because... This is awesome. All this is coming true. And so to skip forward, she takes him to his house because Laban, her, her, her uncle, all right, he comes out and he's now in charge of the house because his father, Abraham's brother, is, is really too elderly to manage things. So he invites him in and starts to feed him. But Eliezer refuses the food and says, I must give my story first. And he says, go on, speak. And so he he goes to on to recount everything that happened. He goes on to recount how his master Abraham has, has accumulated great wealth and status and, and fortune, and God has blessed him abundantly and gave him a son in, in Sarah's old age, and, and now he's looking for a wife. And so he sends him back to his people. And here I encounter Rebecca at the well, and she's so kind, and, and this must be from God. And so they all praise God, and they all admit that this must be from the Lord. And it was very interesting. What we see here in the Targums especially is how that the food that's put out that Eliezer rejects somehow is poisoned. 
And now this is not in scripture, but I felt it was very interesting. And I think you should go back and read that. And as we skip forward, what we see is the after they all praise God and they admit that this must be from God, it is Laban's father, Bethuel, who eats the food and then in Targums it says he dies. And this is leads to why they ask Rebecca to stay additional time and not let her leave right away. Because the next morning, Eleazar gets up and says, now send me back to my master. It's time to go back. And they say, no, she has to stay. In the Targums, they suggest it's because their patriarch, their Bethuel, has died because of this poisoned food. But in Scripture, it says, let her stay ten more days. And he says, no, do not, do not, do not withhold me. Send me back to my master. This is from God. And so they, they put it up to Rebecca. And they say, Rebecca, what do you think? And, they, and Rebecca says, I will go. And so they send her off and they go. And, and basically what we end up here is we end up with Rebecca being told. See, they give her this little, this, this, this prayer. They send her off with this prayer. They say, let, you know, quote, this is verse 60, quote, Our sister be the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. There's blessing her. Because she will receive the fulfillment of the blessing given to Abraham to bear the descendants of this man. Given the same task to leave her family, to go into a strange land, where I will make your descendants as many as the sands of the seashore or the stars of the sky. This is reminiscent of the, of the challenge that Abram had to face when he was called by God. Wish I had more time, but that's going to have to do it for this week. Check out the website, www.catholichack.com, for a link to Michael Rogers and his song, All My Love, which was the intro. Until next time, I'm praying for you. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground.